Good morning, everybody. Welcome to South Hills. It's uh, wonderful to have you with us. For those of you who are joining us online, uh, it's great to have you here as well. What an exciting day. Just uh, at the end of uh, the service, the elders are going to tabulate some uh, votes, and uh, I hope to be uh, saying to you next week, there's a new pastor coming. Uh, that will be exciting for you and exciting for me, because uh, that means I get to go home to my wife. Uh, uh, with, I, I have some time where I know that's going to happen, so uh, it's been wonderful to be here with you. I'm, I'm going to be around for a little bit, but uh, I don't want you to hear that I'm eager to get out of here. Uh, I am in part, but I've loved being here as well, and you have uh, just been delightful and uh, it's been wonderful to have a chance to, uh, to lead and interact with you uh, during this period of time. Could you take your Bibles, please, and uh, turn to uh, Joshua chapter 6 as we continue our study in the, uh, the book of uh, Joshua, entitled the message, uh, Walls Do Come Down. Uh, when you go to war... There's all sorts of strange stories that emerge. Uh, in my role as uh, a pastor, and uh, I've pastored uh, near a military base uh, on one of the churches, and then uh, by, a, by two of the churches, by veterans' hospitals. And so I uh, heard a lot of veterans tell me their war stories. My dad was a World War II vet, fought in one of the bloodiest and brutal uh, places in the Pacific on the Kokoda Trail. When he came home from the World War II, he would not talk. His only words to my mother were, when you've been to Helen back, you never want to talk about it. That was the extent of he talked about the war to my mother. I've spent a lot of time with vets who have gone through PTSD and those sorts of things. But wars also bring out some really strange stories. And starting in uh, Joshua 5 and 6, you see the conquest that uh, the people of God go, go through in acquiring the land. And this um, is one of those stories. But in American history, we have some strange stories. And there's a, a professor, a former dean at Emory University, who would collect Civil War stories. His name was Webb Garrison, and he's published a number of little books. These are the sort of books that you have in your bathroom because they're one-page uh, stories. And he collected all of the bizarre and curious stories uh, from the Civil War. And one of those stories is a guy by the name of Wilma McLean, uh, who claims that the uh, Civil War started in his backyard and ended in his parlor. You go, how could that be? Well, in the Battle of Bull Run, a cannonball was fired onto his property. He had been a retired military person, and like all military persons, once they'd finished, they didn't want to think about war again. 
And he had got his family and wanted to be as far as away from the conflict as he could and thought he was until a cannonball ended up in his uh, yard. So he sold his property, packed up his family and moved. Do you know where he moved to? Appomattox Courthouse. Do you know whose house the surrender occurred in? Wilma Clean's house. Only this time, his parlor got gutted because everybody who was there for the surrender all took souvenirs. So as they could uh, show their friends uh, what had happened. That's a strange story. It starts in your backyard and it ends in your parlor. If you've been in Sunday school, you know about this story that we're going to look at today. How many of you have ever recreated Joshua and the Battle of Jericho in Sunday school? Some of you have. Some of you have. If you have, you know that the average Sunday school teacher, what they do is get some boxes put some paint on them, maybe do it as well as this, actually make it all, you know, bricks, or just recreate it in some way, and then the kids get to reenact the story. They get to do the ceremonial walking around the city. And then at one point, on the seventh time around the city, on the seventh day, the kids get to shout. And you can only imagine how Sunday school kids like that. And as they shout, the teacher kicks the boxes down. And the walls come tumbling down and everybody celebrates the story. We want to look at that story this morning. Israel's now on the other side of the Jordan. They have uh, crossed through on dry land through the riverbed. And then... God asks them to do something really strange. Every male who'd been born in the promised land lines up and is circumcised with a flint knife. Now, if that doesn't make you cringe, I don't know what will. But think about that. You have now walked into enemy territory. And one of the first things God does is he performs surgery on every male. Adult males take a long time to recover from circumcision. The people of God are now vulnerable. In addition to that, they also throw a Passover celebration. Now, depending on the numbers that we come up with, that could be a Passover celebration for nearly 2 million people. How do you cater that in the promised land? Just think about that. Where do you get all the food? And how do you do this? 
Joshua chapter 5 also tells us, not only is there a circumcision, not only is there a celebration of Passover, but the manna stops. So their food supply for 40 years now stops. And they are going to live off the fruits of the land. And then Joshua has an encounter with the commander of the Lord's army who lays out the game plan for what's going to happen moving forward. Israel really has this choice. Are they going to listen to God's word and follow his commands? Or if they don't, they're going to be destroyed. God sort of got them in a place where he needs them to be. They've got to trust and they've got to obey. Otherwise, they're in deep trouble. You ever notice God has a way of engineering your circumstances? So you've got to trust and obey. Because that's what's going on here. We hear the word of the Lord in Joshua 6. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then, Joshua, then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its kings and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in the front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast, on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the walls of the city will collapse and the army will go up. Everybody straight in. Could you imagine presenting this strategy to a group of cadets at West Point? That your strategy for taking the city of Jericho is ceremonial circling. You're going to march from Gilgal to Jericho, 10, 12 miles. You're going to walk around the city once with priests blowing horns. And then you're going to march back to Gilgal. Wow. Okay. And you're going to do this for six days. On the seventh day, you're going to do, you're going to get up extra early, make the march, do it seven times. And on the seventh time, there's going to be a, a loud blast, and the walls are going to come down, and you're going to go in and raid the city. Okay, and Joshua gets these instructions from the Lord, the first six verses. We get extra instructions as we go further on in the, city, in the uh, chapter. Just a couple of points of interest. 
have any idea how big Jericho is? Ancient Jericho probably had a population based on a size of between 1,200 and 2,000. Some people say it may have been about 600 yards around. Some of the other uh, speculations from what we've found at the tell at Jericho is maybe 1.2 in circumference around miles. The uh, wall would have been uh, a a two-level wall. So you would have had... uh, Earth and then some bricks, then a, a slope and then a higher wall going, even, going up higher. Scholars seem to speculate that the people in the surrounding villages outside of Jericho probably came into the city once the Israelites had crossed Jordan and were in their vicinity because they would have gone to where they had some protection. In the ancient world, you breached walls five different ways. The first way you generally did it was you put ladders up and you tried to climb up to the battlement or to the top. Or you built an earth ramp that allowed you to take your troops up. If you ever go to Masada, you'll see that a spectacular example of that at Masada. Uh, the second way people invaded a city was they dug tunnels underneath and they burrowed in underneath the city. Now, in either case, you're vulnerable because you probably place your troops on the top of the wall and then fire down arrows at them or whatever weapon you were using. A third way was you use some sort of catapult thing that would lodge a, um, a stone or something that would breach the wall. Sometimes you'd try and you'd lay siege to the city and you'd starve people out. That was going to be hard at Jericho. Jericho had a wonderful spring system in there. If you go to Jericho today, that's the feature as you enter into the city. You see this spring, and it's, it's, it's good water. And what the archaeologists have found is all sorts of grain storage in the ancient tell. See, the the way you uh, find this is, in archaeology, you're you're looking for mounds that lump up in places because that tells you that there's layers of civilization. And um, at Jericho, we've uh, discovered those layers. Jericho is the lowest city in the world and one of the oldest cities in the world. So there's been all sorts of archaeologists who have worked there. The fifth thing that 
you could do is like when you read Greek history, build a Trojan horse and get them to open the gates and let you in. None of those apply here. What does God say? Walk around the city blowing horns. Is that strange? The soldiers had to hear that as strange. They'd been trained for battle. But that's what happens. God tells a lot of strange stories, doesn't he? He tells Noah to build an ark and everybody ridicules him. He tells Abraham, take your only son and sacrifice him. Imagine that. You've got the David and Goliath story. You've got Moses and the Exodus. You've got Daniel and the lion's den. You've got David, Goliath. You've got Hosea. And you've got Jesus on the cross. The securing the redemption of the world by dying a criminal's death on a Roman cross. God tells strange stories with very different outcomes. And this is just uh, one of those. And Joshua is asked to deliver this story to the priests and to the people. God tells it to him, he tells it to the priests and to the army and to the rest of the congregation. This is a test of his leadership. Can he sell this story? Will they buy it? Will they believe it? There's this other thing that's going on here, a a bigger message where God's saying to us, It's my ways, not your ways. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit that you win the day. It's trust and obey. If you're going to be happy in Jesus, there's no other way. It's just trust and obey. There is no victory without obedience. And then Joshua adds to the story when he talks to the priests. He fleshes it out a little bit in verse 6. So Joshua, son of Nun, calls the priests and says to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. And seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he says to the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard ahead of the Ark, of the Lord. And then when Joshua speaks to the people in verse 8, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. 
the armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. So you've got soldiers in front and in back with priests blowing horns as they circle around the city. All this time, trumpets were sounding. But then Joshua commanded the army, don't give a war cry. That was a common thing, a battle cry. Don't raise your voices. Do not say a word until I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the Ark of the Covenant the Ark of the Lord, excuse me, carried around the city, circling at once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the Ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the Ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to camp. And they did this for six days. They get up early, march 10, 12 miles, circle the city with uh, priests blowing trumpets. Probably 40,000 soldiers marching in silence. You're hearing trumpets and the sound of feet on the desert floor. And then they march 10 miles back. They get up day two, go through the whole routine again, go back. Day three, day four, day five, day six. What's going on? God's strategies always involve obedience. What's God trying to do here? He's capturing their hearts and their imaginations. If you had to come into the office yesterday afternoon, you might have thought I uh, needed to get a straitjacket and go to the funny farm. We have an interior corridor in the office, and I was walking around it. I didn't walk and then go back to my office and come out. I probably should have to reenact it properly. But I kept doing that, trying to figure out what's going on in a soldier's mind as this happens. They're not talking with their mouth, but you know there's all sorts of thoughts going on in their head. What's God trying to do? He's trying to gain their hearts, He's trying to get alignment. And as they walked, as they marched, he got their alignment. 
they did exactly what he asked. They were trusting and obeying. And on the seventh day, they do the whole the culmination of the whole exercise. And they're just waiting for that seventh time for the shout. Because they've been silent. They've been silent. The Bushes tell a story about uh, when uh, President George W. Bush went to visit his parents during his presidency. And he would get up early as his parents did. And they uh, went downstairs to, uh, he went downstairs to have coffee with them. And uh, he's sitting downstairs in his, in his parents' home. His wife is, is upstairs. And we get the story from her. And uh, as, he's started, as he's drinking his coffee, his feet sort of graduate onto the table in the living room. He doesn't ask permission. He just puts his feet... All of a sudden, his mother erupts at him. George, get your feet off the the table. This is the President of the United States. His father looks at Barbara Bush and says, for goodness sakes, honey, he's the President. She looks at him and says, my house, my rules, feet off the table. I don't care if he's the president or not. Laura Bush says the rules apply to everybody. What God wanted people to know, the rules apply to everybody. And he was getting alignment. God was getting alignment for the people. He's getting them ready for the next adventure. Because the the next eight, 12 chapters, Joshua, about all the conquests of the people and the division of the lands. God's strategies always involve obedience and there's no victory without obedience. And as they're walking around, they're understanding that faith comes by hearing God's word. And, and reflecting on it and then obeying it. It really is trust and obey. Now, now think about this. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and then relying on intelligence from a hooker and being made vulnerable by circumcision surgery, God has you walk around a city in silence because God knows you have to wait before you can win. 
And that's what he's getting them to do. He's allowing them time to align themselves with his will. And at the pivotal point, when that trumpet blast blows on the seventh day, and they let out this almighty shout, the walls just come tumbling down. And they walk into the city, and they destroy it. Every living thing. And the soldiers are told not to take any souvenirs, not to take any booty. That's consecrated stuff. And that's how the story, or the section of the story ends. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it is to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things that sh- so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make, camp, otherwise you'll make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpets sounded, the army shouted, and the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the walls collapsed. So everybody charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys." That last verse is um, pretty hard to read given our modern sensibilities and given some other things that uh, are said in the text. And I don't have the best answer for why God would uh, destroy the young of that city, except I know that God does justly and that he's trustworthy. And I've got to take it at at that value. You see, what happens in that circulate as they're waiting is they're being reminded that God's trustworthy and that God keeps his promise. Can I tell you something, South Hills? God always keeps his promise. Do you believe that? He keeps his promise. He is always with us. And you're an exciting part in your history. For 113 years, this church has been in this community. That's mind-boggling. I um, got a chance on Friday to go over to the Ricci Museum. I'd been waiting for it to open because I'd wanted to go. And it was a, a great experience to just be reminded about all the things that have happened in this community. If you haven't been, I'd really encourage you to go. 
But I was just reminded how faithful God's been to this church and to this place. And there's been wonderful years of ministry here. And many of you sort of grew up with Pastor Phil. I was talking to somebody uh, in between the services, and they said, you know, uh, Phil did our, marriage, our premarital counseling just when he came. And we were with him all of those years. And we got talking about how that'll be exciting for a new set of people to have that same experience with somebody else. Because ministry's always about the next generation. It's not just about me and mine. It's about the will of God being realized in other people's lives. That's what the future's going to be. You're going to get to see that unfold with a new leader. And God's been faithful to this point. He'll be faithful beyond that. Do you know what attendance was last week? It was over a thousand people. It's been a while since it hit that number. That tells me the possibility. How do you win victories? By trusting and obeying. How did Israel conquer Jericho? By trusting and obeying, understanding that God was trustworthy. They listened to him, they waited on him, and they did what he said. Not a bad recipe for, for a church, is it? <laughs> Hear what he says, wait on him, you've been waiting, now obey and see what he'll do. The future's exciting. It really is. You see, there'll always be a Jericho in your life. There'll always be a place that's walled up. My question to you is, uh, what have you walled up? What have you said to God? Can't come, you don't break those walls. And God's outside knocking. He wants the walls to come down. There can be walls of addiction. There can be walls of pornography, of work. Walls of even play. There can be walls of pride and doubt and stubbornness. Walls of anger. They'll come down if you obey what God says. But if not, you'll be a prisoner. And God wants walls to come down. And they come down by trusting and obeying. Hearing what God says. Doing what he says. Trusting his son 
who's the saviour of the world, trusting his word, which are very words of life to us. That little song we learn in Sunday school has a lot of truth. To be happy in Jesus, you trust and obey. Just trust and obey. Moving forward, it's trusting and obeying. That got me thinking about Moses. He didn't get to go in the promised land because one time, just one time, he didn't trust and obey. How many things have I missed out in my life because I didn't trust and obey? And how many things have I gained because I trusted and obeyed? John Piper has this wonderful uh, scene where he writes, I see an old man talking about Moses with, with a straight back, a strong bronze face, clear eyes, and snow-white hair climbing up Mount Nebo. And as he climbs, the camp of his beloved Israelites gets smaller and smaller on the east and on the west beyond the Jordan. And the promised land stretches out larger and larger. I see him atop of the peak of Pisgah, facing west, all alone with God. At the end of one of the greatest ministries the world has ever known, the wind blowing his white hair and tears of regret flowing down his face. And I ask myself, my God, how many conquests of joy have I forfeited through disobedience? That's a haunting question. How many experiences of joy have I forfeited because of disobedience? And on the other side, how many experiences of joy have I had because of obedience? There's no victory without obedience. This morning, as uh, we move into communion, as we take the bread and as we drink the cup, we remember one thing. We remember who God is and what God's done, don't we? We remember who Jesus is and we remember what Jesus has done. Can I ask you to stand with me as we read the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The table is for all who believe. At this table, we remember. At this table, we celebrate. I know some of you tend to think of the communion service as a place of introspection. Can I suggest to you, it is always a time of remembrance and celebration. Celebration, because what do we celebrate? We celebrate that Jesus Christ was crucified. Because he was crucified, my shame, your shame, my guilt, your guilt, no longer has dominion over us. He took care of that. He died to cleanse us. As we eat this bread and drink this cup, not only do we remember his crucifixion, but we remember his resurrection. That when he died, he defeated sin and death. He obliterated it. And he gives us the power to live in newness of life. I ask you, why would you do morbid introspection about that? He's given you a new identity. You're in Christ. The old has passed away and the new has begun. When you eat this bread and drink this cup, you announce that he's ascended and he's seated at the right hand of the Father on high. There he is our high priest who hears our prayers, who receives our celebration. And he is Lord over the church. He's Lord. And when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you announce that he's coming again. He's coming in power and great glory. The dead will be raised and those who are alive and remain will join him. He will right all wrongs and he'll create a new heaven and a new earth and God himself will be all in all. I tell you, why would you go into morbid introspection? This is celebration, isn't it? We announce Jesus Christ is Lord. Eat and drink in remembrance of him. Please eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus Christ, the Lord. And as you drink, drink in remembrance of Christ Jesus, who shed his blood for you. And all God's people said, let's celebrate.